Hello everyone, welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. And today I'm joined by Professor Dr. Ulf Nerbas, who is CEO of the Luxembourg Institute of Health, otherwise known as LIH, which focuses on biomedical research, clinical trials and population health. Ulf's career has focused on translational research, how to apply and source excellent research to serve unmet patient needs. He was the director and founder of the Institut Pasteur Korea, where he sourced an international team to become one of the first translational drug discovery institutes. Ulf was also the founder and CEO of Quirient Therapeutics, a biotech near Seoul, IPO since 2016. Since then, he created a French-German translation centre, which combines Inserm, Zanofi, Alsace, BioValley and BioPro. And this company employs AI to develop patient-based disease models for drug discovery. Welcome, Ulf. Pleasure to be here. Hello. I'm not quite sure if I've pronounced all of these places correctly. The Translational Centre, the French-German one, what's that called? It's Bluff Xilink. Xilink, yeah. So it's wonderful to have you here. Mm -hmm. You've been a very famous face in the last year due to COVID. And I know we're not going to focus on COVID in this conversation, but we have to just touch upon it. Mm -hmm. The first question really is, the science around the world came together in record time. They developed various vaccines. And now Europe, even the World Health Organization today, has said that Europe's rollout is completely not keeping pace with how it should be. Yeah, it's very disappointing. We have to keep in mind that uh, uh, when it comes to research and the translational research, it was Europe that was first in discovering vaccines. I, I think uh, the Gameda Institute in Russia with uh, Sputnik V, uh, then uh, Oxford with AstraZeneca as a partner, uh, BioNTech, these are all developments that we have spearheaded here in Europe. And, and so it's disappointing to see that when it comes to actually implementing other countries are so much faster, even with our vaccines. Yes, I, I have to say, um, I would have wished we were further at this stage. I know it's a political decision and it's out of the science hands. Do you feel more scientists should be politicians? But having said that, even Angela Merkel, who is a scientist, has chosen to, to pause a certain vaccine. Well, I, I think science has had a very important role to play at the beginning of the pandemic. Obviously, there was so little known. I mean, the risks were enormous and politicians, of course, need to base their decisions on, on facts. So we had a, an important role to play. But as the pandemic is ensuing and is continuing and there are not so many more new facts coming in, I do not think that the, the prominent role of scientists is necessarily helpful. No, but I mean, do you think there should be more scientists who become politicians? Oh, yeah, well, but even then, it is not easy to take your perspective uh, as a scientist uh, into a political decision-making process. I do think, for example, currently in Germany, the statisticians, the uh, bioinformaticians and the virologists have a very prominent role, but other science areas, I think psychology, sociology, are maybe not prominently represented. So... Does it help in the end? It certainly helps to understand. But in getting decisions right, you can only see it from your perspective, even as a scientist. And it is a, by, by necessity a narrow one. Well, you have, as part of your remit, population health. So you have to be able to see a much broader spectrum. So when it comes to population health, that, of course, has been 
intrinsic to COVID and it's a world population health. How have you used your expertise to think about COVID? Well, I think that uh, from an epidemiological point of view, we have been able, because of the expertise in our institute, to think of strategies or the early strategies that would have worked at the level of the Luxembourgers population. And that is why large-scale testing was basically the first measure that could have been done and it was done. The tests were available. Of course, vaccines were not. And so I think it really educated the strategy that we have taken since. And uh, if you devise a strategy early on, you may be right, you may be wrong. It is satisfying to see that we seem to have taken the right, several right decisions uh, at that stage in Luxembourg. And uh, now observing what is happening in Germany these days, where Germany is trying to struggle to establish a, a large-scale testing framework, many things have been done right. Of course, I can't say everything. <laughs> we can never say everything, yeah. I don't think. But across Europe, if you could make a political decision when it comes to vaccines, what do you think would be, in your position today, the right next step? I cannot tell you. I mean, I, I think it is really dependent on the availability of the vaccine doses. Once you have these vaccine doses, there may be a number of routes that you may want to take. Uh, one of the questions is, do you give both boosts uh, in the time interval as is prescribed, or do you wait longer with a second vaccination? All of these could be discussed if the vaccine doses were available. But I think it is a very theoretical discussion. Simply, they are not here yet. We all hope that the uh, this will be discussions we will have soon as vaccines are here. Well, I know that there is the separate discussion whereby people have to want the vaccine. And it has been said to me privately that the uptake, even within medical staff in Luxembourg, is not over 50%. And this seems a huge shame. And I'm quite sure if there was the opportunity for other people to opt into taking those vaccines, they might. So how do you then take the conversation beyond that to the general public to say taking a vaccine is a very good idea? It is an extremely good idea. I think that uh, what we have observed in millions of people having been vaccinated, adverse reactions are very rare. So the risk is um, objectively taken very small. Now, if you look at what impact this pandemic has on our lifestyle, on, on how we can interact with each other, restaurants being closed, if you imagine, imagine another situation in which we were forced to live or change our lives so drastically, not go to restaurants, not meet, not meet family, I think we would be willing to take any risk and any measure to defend our lifestyle. It is difficult for me to understand why now we are not willing to take a minimal risk that a vaccination may uh, involve in order to get the lives back that we want. Difficult to comprehend, really. Thank you for your time on COVID. I'll park it there for now. And let's move on to the future of medicine as you see it and drug discovery. So tell us about how it used to be target-based and what your focus on translational medicine, the translational approach means. So translational science, in principle, is, is not a new uh, concept. Translational science is how it actually started. If you're looking back in time, uh, from Robert Koch to, to Louis Pasteur, 
translation was at the origin. I mean, people did do research in order to translate it directly into patients. Josef Meister was a young lad who was bitten by a rabid dog in Strasbourg, I think at the end of the 19th century. Thierry Pasteur actually had developed a new vaccine and injected it directly in young Josef Meister. He had a very strong immune reaction, but he survived. Now, from back then to where we are now, of course, there have been a lot of developments. I mean, safety concerns are predominant. And of course, you have to keep keep in mind many steps that have to be undertaken between the beginning of a research project and an actual product that is available to help patients. But what has changed really in the last years is that we are progressively deviating from a target-based approach. Let me explain that. Target-based approach is that we think we know what is the cause of a disease, a gene or a protein, and uh, we are trying to impact on it with a drug, for example, and hope that if this protein is modified, that the disease is cured. In the most cases, that is extremely difficult and often it goes wrong. This means that we have very high failure rates in drug development uh, today. A different approach that takes back observation is more complex. Here, you are trying to reconstitute a disease in a model system that very closely reflects the actual disease in the patient. And these are patient-based disease models. This can be done today. And what you do then is you take the complex model and simply um, screen which compounds or which drugs will cure the model system without knowing what the actual target is. In the second step, then you go back and you try to understand why has this approach worked? And that is different. It is different from hypothesizing what should work. You can now go, be systematic, observe, select the right drug, and then try to understand why it did work. And does this work for all diseases, across all diseases and all people of different ethnicities, different sexes, etc.? Um, no, it, it works for certain diseases that are actually um, manifest on the level of um, cells. I mean, you cannot, of course, reconstitute a physiological disease model. This would be an entire body with all its interactions. So that already limits the type of diseases that um, you can target. The second point is that diseases are, the way we see them today, are, are huge categories um, which in fact have to be subdivided. If a patient today suffers from Parkinson's, this is not just one big disease. There may be very many subforms. Each patient or small groups of patients only may have the same form of a given disease. Now, when we think about therapy, then we cannot imagine that there is one drug or one approach that will help all of the patients. We have to understand really what these subgroups are and what distinguishes them. And then we can target it with a much higher success rate. We can target that specific disease with a personalized drug. And this is, of course, now coming online. We are progressively able to see disease not as a 
large group, but in a personalized, subclassified approach. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the future of medicine mm -hmm. is, is rapidly changing. And that brings about many different steps also right back to the education at university, which is normally where people start learning about how to yeah. treat any disease in, in depth. And so when it comes to changing the method of education in order to satisfy the needs for future research and future business and medicine development, how do you go back and alter that framework? Uh -huh. I think for the moment it is very difficult and in, uh, very important. It's difficult and it is important, of course, to understand um, what I've just told you, the disease subgroups. We have to take approaches that allows us to stratify. Stratify means we have to have criteria that allow us to distinguish one disease subgroup from another. In order to be able to do that, we have to take new approaches in education. I think that artificial intelligence is one computational approach that um, I think has to become a, a broad basis in, in education overall. And how would you use that? It is a very broad term in helping figure out the, the subgroups of different diseases. Yeah, another point is that, of course, we have to move away a little bit from uh, the concept that subgroups are defined by genes. You, you're probably aware of uh, genetic sequencing and there has been a lot of expectations when uh, the whole genome sequencing started that it would allow us to exactly pinpoint why people are sick and how to cure them. In fact, it is less powerful than we thought. If you look at cancer today, um, many patients are being sequenced. In only 8% of all cancer patients do you recognize a specific genetic uh, signature. And in only 4%, it's only half of those, uh, does that allow you to target treatment? Now, in an even smaller percentage of these patients, the targeted treatment will have an effect. This means that we have to move away from our understanding uh, of genes and genetic information as the only determinant of what a subgroup may be. And there are many other ways of uh, stratifying um, what we do now at LIH. We simply use mm, the drug response in order to stratify. I mean, it's a very direct approach. We simply look uh, which tumors respond to what drugs. And that is not only a very direct way to classify a cancer, it's a shortcut to identifying what is the right treatment. So this is called personal functional profiling. This is one approach, but there are many others that are now coming online. When you're looking at patients, imaging is very important. If you look at an image, an MRI image, or it's a representation of a disease state life here and now. There's immense information in there. We have to be able to understand that. That is image analysis. This is certainly becoming important. Um, there are other points. I mean, the, the, there are biometrics. It is extremely important to look at the patient overall. How does he behave? Is a, is a direct reflection of a disease or a disease state. And you can measure that. You can measure it in the voice. Obviously, I recently had a cold. My voice is distinctly different. In patients, you can measure voice as a, as a very, very subtle readout for disease. You can have gait measurements, how people walk. You can assess nutrition, you can assess social factors around and all of these multiple parameters define 
a state of an individual and allows us then to distinguish what disease state she or he may be in. And it's a very important prerequisite to then start targeting. And that is only now starting. And artificial intelligence is then allowing us to put these many independent parameters into a context to discern when are they functionally linked. That means when is there a relevant subgroup that actually does reflect a disease state. And it's extremely exciting because uh, once we have these subgroups, we can then simply see what drug will, and drugs that maybe are already on the market, which drugs will specifically help what patient. This is absolutely fascinating to think that you can use whole body parameters like voice and gait and social discerning mm. pointers yeah. to think about this. When when you mention gait, I think about security because I know certain <laughs> security. Yes. When you enter a country, they yeah. look at the gait of yeah. people, etc. I'm also thinking about the drug responses because when you think about how one person may respond to a drug, there could be comorbidity issues. They could have so many underlying factors. Yeah. And so how do you then go about thinking about the drug response to the actual disease or how it's correlated to other issues that person is facing? Yeah, but I think that even the idea of a disease being distinct from the comorbidities, probably that is changing. I think we will probably look at disease readout in the context of comorbidities, also distinct diseases. I mean, currently we are starting to build cohorts in immune-related diseases. One is called inflammatory bowel disease. That's a chronic inflammation uh, of the bowels. Another one is rheumatoid arthritis. These appear to be distinct diseases, but when we now start to stratify these cohorts uh, of patients that are suffering from these diseases, we will find subgroups, and it is very likely that there are shared mechanisms underlying. This means it is very well possible that patients that have one disease are going to be suffering from a related ailment. So understanding the shared pathways that connect between different diseases or that connect between diseases and comorbidities is, is important, of course, in order to personalize treatment. And we are only now at the cusp, at the step where we can start to analyze and understand that. I think it's a really fascinating time to be in the health world. And when you mentioned the word subgroups, for me, that made it feel quite distinct from one another. But in fact, you're talking more of a, you also said the phrase shared pathways and the connectivity. So it's like a tube map for yeah. all of these interrelationships between certain what we have in the past called diseases. Mm. And the likelihood is that there's a lot of shared issues. Yeah. So I think that the, the term, there are two terms, one is personalized medicine and the other one is precision medicine. And I'd like to explain that because, of course, all of the people individually suffer probably from a rather specific type of uh, disease. The treatment would therefore be personalized, but at the same time, there are subgroups. If you take all of the patients from a certain disease, there will be those who are coming closer to each other that share a common subgroup. And they will be benefiting from a similar approach. So you treat people individually, but it is precision medicine because, it, of course, we cannot develop a drug for a person. 
But precision medicine means that you have a drug for a subgroup of patients who then share similar underlying uh, pathway defects. Mm-hmm. And the characteristics of yeah. that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking about how you set up something like LIH or the Institute in Korea, or indeed the businesses, the spin-off biotech businesses that you've created, how do you go about pinpointing the mission for that business and then sourcing the people you need to serve it? A very good question. I mean, it's, I, I think that f- how do we go about setting it up? I mean, when we did uh, Institute Pasteur Korea, it is the idea of trying to think ahead. In biomedicine, you are both enabled and limited by technology. If there are new technology coming online, you, you try to understand and how can they be functionalized in the sense of a translational program. When we came to Korea, what was new is that uh, you could take very high-powered microscopy and look at diseased cells. You could look at the disease in the eye, if you so want, and then add many different drugs to see which drug would cure the cell that you're looking at. This was new. It had not been done before. So what we had to do is hire people that are extremely good in imaging, imaging algorithms, and the ability to create this in high throughput. In Korea, what we did is we took microbacteria that were infectious. This is the bacteria that causes tuberculosis. And we built a high-security laboratory. It's a BSL-3 in which you could safely handle these bacteria. And with these, we infected uh, human macrophages. These are the cells that usually are the target of these microbacteria. And this has not been done before. We simply recreated the disease. We infected the actual human macrophages with microbacteria, and we watched it. We simply screened then which drugs would kill the microbacteria, but uh, leave the human macrophages intact. And this allowed us to develop in record time an entirely new first-in-class drug against TB, which is, I think, currently uh, the most powerful against total drug-resistant TB even. And this was done by functionalizing a new a technological approach. We simply took the people who were leading in imaging, in uh, in robotics, and um, put and this endeavor an together. That's an example of precision medicine. That is an ex- that is a, that is an example that when you are looking at disease, you try to create a disease model that actually does reflect the disease. There are other ways of doing it. You could take a given target protein in the bacteria and say now. This must be important for mycobacteria. I try to inactivate that protein. So this means that you develop a screening campaign, you identify chemicals that would inactivate that specific protein. It's a lot of work. And at the end of the day, you would find out, well, it would work, but it can't enter into macrophages. So this means when the mycobacteria are already in the human cell, your drug will not work. So what we instead did, we started from the end point. The model system is the actual infectious disease. And we simply looked at, we observed what stops it. And that is what I told you at the beginning. We didn't know why the drug that we initially identified, we had no idea why would it stop the infection. This was only reconstructed later on. And it would be too specific to tell you what the target was, but you would have never thought of it. And so what you can do there is 
bring back observation into drug discovery to be unprejudiced, to simply observe what works and later on understand why did it work. This is what we had done in Korea. And then as I came back to Europe, we wanted to move away from just infectious diseases and look at chronic diseases. And just on the point of the work in Korea, could that have been automated or did it require human eyes, expert human eyes? I don't know. I mean, uh, it is fully automated. And uh, an automated imaging algorithm is a lot more powerful than the human eye, which is a little bit difficult to to understand. Uh, Also now, if you're looking at artificial intelligence and imaging, it becomes a bit technical, but let me try to explain that previously you needed one very strong readout or a signal, something that had to change very significantly, statistically significantly, in order for you to be able to measure it. If it doesn't really change very starkly, you can't see it, you can't measure it. But artificial intelligence now is able to look at many parameters in a cell at the same time. It can discern when a cell infected or chronic cell is healthy and when it is diseased. And that is the addition of many small parameters that with the human eye can't possibly be discerned. And it is the addition of many small changes that when you add them up become significant. And that is what artificial intelligence allows you to do in imaging. And that is why we can now distinguish healthy from diseased cells in chronic disease context. And that's what we did with Sanofi and Inserm in um, Strasbourg. We developed disease models in chronic diseases. For example, in dilative uh, cardiomyopathy, this is a heart disease. We were able to take skin cells from patients and uh, turn them into heart muscle cells. These patients had a mutation. There was a gene that was defect and we could correct it. And so what we have now in a model system is from the patient, heart muscles that are functional, both healthy and diseased. And an artificial intelligence-driven imaging approach allows us to automatically detect when these cells are healthy and when they are diseased. And we simply add many thousand compounds to see in a fully automated fashion when a compound, a chemical compound, can reconstitute a healthy heart cell. And that is where drug discovery is going now. Of course, this is target-free. When we start that, we do not know why a certain compound will repair or reconstitute a healthy heart cell, but we are able to reconstruct it in a second step. And by and large, this will be a lot more effective. And why? Because at the end... When you come into the clinical phases where you're testing your drugs, in clinical phase two, you are coming to test the efficacy. That is actually when you're seeing on whether the drug that you have developed in a model system is actually working in patients of that disease. And the big advantage of what we now do is that the disease model is the actual disease in the patient. So there is no more gap. Mm -hmm. Previously, we would use a mouse model We would try to build a disease model in the mouse. We would cure the mouse and then find that it has no effect on humans. (laughs) And this has been done again and again. And now I think technologically we have arrived at a stage where this can be done and where it can be done in a 
precision medicine approach. And it's extremely exciting. And then you've mentioned a, a number of different diseases from TB to heart tissue to immuno diseases. You mentioned a yeah. couple of the, the bowel and rheumatoid arthritis as well. How do you choose? I, I've looked at the website for LIH and you have oh, yes. a lot of research on cancer yeah. as well. Yeah. Some very close to my heart and my family. How do you choose where to begin? Which disease groups to start tackling? Yeah, so when you come in into an institution for the first time, of course, you see that there is a lot of activity that is all over the place and it is very important to put some type of system into it. That is important so that various scientists and scientific approaches, they can talk with each other and create synergies. Now, what we have decided at LIH is to simply focus on the immune system. And the immune system, of course, is at the heart of many diseases, certainly not all. And you can imagine there are two states in a balanced system, the immune system neither too active nor too inactive, you're a healthy human being. But if your immune system becomes too active, you are entering an area of autoimmune diseases. I mean, overactive immune systems are associated certainly with arthritis, and certainly multiple sclerosis with inflammatory bowel disease with Parkinson's. So there must be common mechanisms that underlie all of these diseases. And we would like to understand not really each single disease, but what are the common mechanisms. And if you have these mechanisms, you understand why are they overactive. And the next question is, well, what happens if they are not active enough? And what you have then is cancer. Because if your immune system is not active enough, it is not able to recognize and to clean up with cells that naturally are being transformed or precancerous, even in a healthy body, but they're recognized and then being removed. So if the immune system is not active enough, then there's a high chance that certain cancerous cells may be missed, and that is cancer. So you can see that it looks like we are looking at many different diseases, but from our perspective, we tackle it from a mechanism that they all share. And we try to understand on how can we impact on it, how can we tune it up or down. And this will be very important in order to find new therapies and approaches in the future. That's a fascinating way of looking at the body. The healthy body is within that boundary, that margin of immunity being not too high, not too low. I read somewhere once, and it's probably not true, but that uh, females in particular often suffer from autoimmune disease. Is that correct? Uh, statistics I have not looked at. I, I'm not sure whether there is a difference there, but what is clear is, and when we're now looking at population health, and why is that interesting at LIH, is because, again, and I come back to that, it is not all in the genes. You don't have a more active or less active immune system because you're genetically predisposed. There are very few cases where that may be so, and it's, of course, interesting to look at. But it could rather be the way you live, where you live or what you eat. Mm -hmm. And so there is a group uh, recently that for the first time at LIH has very convincingly shown in the molecular way, so it's, it's, a, it's a very mechanistic way, on how our diet can directly impact on whether the immune system is more or less active. This is very interesting because it comes down to certain amino acids. <laughs> whether you have more or less, these are, pardon, Amino acids are constituents of proteins. Yeah, amino and so what you eat, uh, what you eat can in this way have in the long term an impact on the balance of your physiology and thus on your health. 
I'm, I'm smiling actually because I know that you didn't have breakfast this morning. Yeah. <laughs> you had your double espresso yeah. with two sugars. Yeah. And I'm wondering if this wonderful research by your group yeah. <laughs> has altered how you eat. Mm, well, I, I observe it. I know it has impacts, but the, the problem really is uh, if you start thinking about that, then uh, you go down a rabbit very, hole. <laughs> the trivial pursuit of happiness is nonetheless an important one. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's really hugely important. And I think everybody knows that environmental factors and stressors on our life have massive impacts on potential diseases we might get, pollution being another one, of course. Absolutely. And to then take this a step further is that if we would understand these mechanisms better, and if we could be able to stratify patients, that is to define subgroups of and then we could actually systematically look at, well, what do they have in common? Not genetically, but where do they live? What do they eat? What do they work? What could be common environmental factors that could actually be determinants for these people to be in that disease state? And the next step from there is that you can go from therapy to prevention, and prevention will become more important. And how do we get there? There is, of course, a little bit of contentious concept around data, we will be able to take this from therapy into prevention if sufficient data are available. It is a sensitive topic. It's a very interesting topic because, of course, you could get amazing data if people allow their data to be shared for best practice in medicine. But people are slightly worried about that sharing yeah. data yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah it, it, is, it is worrying. And I think the, the way it has been done or it was done in the past there was not a strong incentive for people to give their data because it was done in a way that if you had a certain disease and you give your data, there was an understanding that, well, generations later, maybe people who have the same disease will benefit from the data that this person has given. If we really try to encourage people and take them by the hand and show what is the value, it is very important that there is a meaning in it. That means if you give the data, you you who are sick will benefit yourself. So the feedback cycles, they have to be fast. They have to be short term or medium term. In the design of our projects, we are trying to make sure that if people give data, it is them and their caregivers who will actually profit from it. And that is now possible and maybe hasn't been so so much in the past. Well, I'm pretty sure if medicine could feedback in the way that precision advertising seems to feedback, people would see the use in it. Yes, well, precision advertising maybe is uh, one thing that... Um, That's the reason people are a bit worried about sharing data exactly, sometimes. Yeah. Yes, mm. yes. But for medicine, it's quite, quite a different reason. Now, you've lived all over the world. You've lived in New York, Cambridge, the UK, Europe, Korea... Which country or continent has the best science investment and education and recognises science for what it is? Now, please don't accuse me of being an opportunist, but it is by really at a clear and a far margin is Luxembourg. <laughs> it's it's it is. I mean, I have been I have been working in these really. I was embedded in various approaches of doing science in the US which was a very tough system, I have to say, in in England, where you have a lot of time to think, but not a lot of funding. And in Korea, where it is, I mean, it pretty much can follow what you would imagine it could be. <laughs> 
But in Luxembourg, there is really a combination of, well, a good funding situation. You have attracted the best talent. And I do feel, and that is really different, that in, in Luxembourgish population, there is an appreciation for science. I hope this will remain in this way. And we will do our best here to actually show that the science that Luxembourgers have funded will be able to really benefit them. And in other countries, that's not the case. I mean, I think in Germany, you have... Uh, an entirely different trend. I mean, look what happens in Berlin with vaccinations against measles. I mean, there is a general trend moving away, but Luxembourg, I think it's a very enlightened environment and I have I have not seen such a can-do spirit and capacity as, as it is here. And in fact, that's why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say possibly newly enlightened because science hasn't been on the forefront for so long in Luxembourg, if we look back in the decades yeah. gone by, it wasn't really postmarked for science here. No, it wasn't. And you would maybe think that that's bad because there is a scientific culture that is missing. Like if you look at Cambridge, I mean, this has been going on for almost a thousand years. But on, on another hand, is that um, you have a kind of a mid-level entry strategy. You don't have to repeat all of the mistakes that others have done. You can just simply look at what works and what doesn't work and take the best of of all worlds. And that is really what has happened here in in Luxembourg. So many of the paradigm shifts that the others had to go through, we could simply avoid. Well, it makes it more flexible. Also, looking at your past, you have this wonderful mix of research, deep research, and then putting teams together. You've worked in the public sector and also the private sector, developing your own businesses. Why do you want to remain in the public sector? What is really exciting is innovation, developing new things, asking questions. When you go into a commercial environment, it becomes very narrow very quickly. I mean, uh, in fact, what we developed in Korea 14 years ago, if you think in terms of commercialization, I would have to do exactly the same thing again and again and again. I would be a leading specialist in that specific sector. And if you want to go into a commercial environment, you have to be very good in what you do. The price is a very narrow focus. So I did enjoy it and I'm very happy that the spin-offs that we have created worked and uh, we have drugs that now really help patients. It's extremely satisfying. Would I do that specific part again? It's very narrow. And um, there is so much to discover. I am now in a phase of biomedical research that is more exciting than anything I could have ever imagined when I was a student. And so you simply, if you can be part of it, you try to be part of this excitement of discovering and applying new things. It's much freer in an public academic environment than it would be in a biotech framework. Mm -hmm. And thinking about that, students coming up, as you've pointed out through this discussion, the the environment for medicine, for science, for tech, for AI, VR, it's so rapidly changing. If you were to take your time again as a student now, what would you advise people to study? Where do you begin? I think you have to simply be open and it doesn't so much matter where you start. I mean, sometimes I'm teaching students and I have been doing that uh, on and off. And it's maybe three, four years ago that I actually look at them and I stand there and I can tell you I'm jealous. I look at them and I see the enormous potential that they have ahead of themselves. Now, it's 
in biomedical sciences, we have been basically shoveling the charcoal in the in the bottom of a of a big steamship for a long time. When I started my PhD, we were doing molecular biology in very small systems, so incrementally advancing. What is happening right now is a real explosion of potential and possibilities. It doesn't matter whether you start from physiology, whether you study medicine, biology. They're all so closely connected that if you have an open mind, you will be able to enter from any angle. I have this uh, nagging jealousy if I see what they have at their disposal right now. Very exciting. Well, it's still at your disposal and you've also got the disposal of the budget. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) I I think if they had the choice, they'd rather be in your shoes one day. (laughs) Um, So just to, to end our conversation, and thank you so much for your time. I know how precious it is. What would you say to two sets of the population, one being the general public when it comes to understanding what is best for their health and what should they be looking out for when it comes to reading literature? Where should they start educating themselves? Um, Very difficult question. I think that uh, we have to, when we look at the literature that is now available that is pertaining to health, is a lot. And it can be very misleading. I mean, if you follow so-called specialists that can advise you on your daily diet in one and the other direction, if I look at it, I find it confusing and sometimes irritating because there is a claim of a, an absoluteness in the advice that is being given that is often not correct and cannot be correct. So I, I think what we have to do is, uh, from our side, from the side of research and uh, from population health, to maybe do a better outreach to educate people more to make them aware of the fact that uh, there are like everywhere no simple solutions that uh, you have to find the balance but we have to tell them where and how that currently I think is difficult to do it is difficult to navigate there is an abundance of information and the quality is not always what it should be so I can't quite give you an answer And I do feel if you ask me that, there's some responsibility on our side to help to contribute to a better and a higher quality education. It's nice to know where the gaps are sometimes because then one can think about how to fill them. Mm -hmm. The other side of that conversation and how you change the nature of the conversation just coming full circle back to the beginning is in the political sphere. How do you change your conversation when you're thinking back to those initial COVID days about a year ago (laughs) this month to be able to contemplate how to fix such a global pandemic problem? How do you change the nature of your conversation with the deputy, for example? Also a difficult question. I think that the the interaction we had with the politician at the onset of the crisis, again, was a very productive one. I mean, we had a lot of questions ourselves. There was a very open exchange. At this time, with respect to the pandemic in specific, as we had said at the onset, from a scientific argumentation, there is little we can contribute. I mean, I think these are these are now processes and steps that have to be taken there well out of the realm of, uh, of science. Overall, I do have an impression uh, at what is happening now in uh, Luxembourg, that Politicians have taken up the tool set that science has given and they're using it very, very cleverly, very smartly in a very balanced way. 
in Luxembourg, the current numbers are sort of controlled. There is a very clear correlative between numbers going up or down and the measures that are being implemented. That is very commendable. It's very different from what is going on in, in Germany. But the discourse that we had at the beginning of the pandemic, I think, was the right one to have. And should there be a need, we would go back to the type of exchange we had back then. But for the moment, the role for science in this discourse is simply less prominent and less needed. We just need to give uh, some of the European leaders a good a good shake and say, let's get on with the vaccination. <laughs> well, if, if they could, I'm sure they would. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Thank you so much for your yeah. time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.